Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We've been journeying through the book of Mark, if you haven't been with us, and we're in this series called This is the Gospel. And really through this series that we started last fall, we've been seeking to clarify something that gets thrown around a lot, which is the word gospel. What is the gospel? And last week, if you were with us, Joe did a phenomenal job teaching us through Mark chapter 5 and and we got to see this, this, this whole idea of, of it comes down to faith. And we saw this woman who had been suffering for many years with this health issue. And then on the opposite side, we got to see this man whose, whose young daughter was on the, the precipice of death. And then as they came and, and told him that she actually had passed, and, and we find in this moment that they have to come to this realization we're either going to put our faith in Jesus or our faith in our circumstances and what everything around us looks like. And so we've been talking about faith. And I know, you know, a lot of you in this room, you're, you're sitting here and you may not think of yourself as this way, but whether you realize it or not, we are all people of faith. And there's a person, I know there's a person here that you're thinking, you don't even know what I've been, I don't even know why I'm here today. And I want to tell you, we are all people of faith. You see, as we live our lives, there are many moments again and again, day after day, that we put our faith and our trust in certain things. It, it may be a person, it may be a, a, a position, it may be our experience, it may be in a system. It, I don't know what it is, but we put our faith in different things. And as we go through life, if you've lived long enough, you find that there's some things that are faith-worthy some things that aren't so faith-worthy. I know this seems trivial, but I go through Chick-fil-A, and 99% of the time, I'm trusting that what I ordered is in the bag, right? Like down to the straw, the napkins, the sauce, it's all there. And in fact, the 1% that it's not right, I just assume they heard better from God about what I'm supposed to eat today. And I'll just take it. But other places you go, it's, you, know, you don't have that trust. Like there's certain drive throughs I go through and I'm checking down to the bottom of the bag to make sure they got everything right. I kid you not, um, a few years ago, we were visiting some family in Arkansas and uh, we, there's not a whole lot to eat in this little town. And, and so one night uh, I, I went out to McDonald's to grab something for us to eat for dinner. And, and I, I go through the drive-thru, I get it back home, and I bring it, I, I give everybody their food, and then I go to sit down, and I, I go to eat mine, and I, I'm, I'm not even messing with you. I open it up, and they gave me a chicken sandwich with no chicken. <laughs> Bread, there. Mayo, tons of it. Lettuce, yep. Chicken, nowhere to be found. You see, what had happened was, is I had put my trust and my faith in some 14-year-old kid who's working a minimum wage job at a McDonald's in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, at 9.30 at night, and I put my trust in him where maybe I shouldn't have. And again, I know this seems trivial, I know it seems silly, but whether we realize it or not, there are things that we put our trust in again and again. Maybe you put your trust in, in your experience. You put your trust in how things have always just seemed to work out for you. You put your trust in your job and your finances. You put your trust in your health that, that oh, nothing's ever going to go wrong. But we find as we live life that eventually all of those things will let us down. 
There is only one thing that is truly worthy of all our faith. And we sang about it this morning. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And so there's this point where we have to evaluate what is it that we are putting our faith and trust in? Because, you know, a lot of times you can grow up in church and you hear the word faith and you just think, I gotta believe harder. Anybody? But what if the measure of your faith isn't how hard you believe? The measure of your faith is the object that you put your faith and your trust into. You see, I had put my faith in this McDonald's worker. And you know what? I believed really hard that the chicken was gonna be there but it didn't make it there when I got home. And some of you, you're going through life and you're just thinking, I just gotta believe harder. I just gotta, I just gotta believe more and I, I gotta do this. And, and trust me, yeah, you, you do have to believe, but you have to believe in the right thing. And faith is important because faith doesn't just determine how we act it, it, or it doesn't just determine how we think. It, it determines how we behave, how we live our life. And a lot of times, maybe you grew up in a church that faith is just all buttoned up intellectualism. That if I just know all the stories, if I can win the sword drills, if I can get my Awana patches and I get it all together, then I grow up and I attend, you know, every Sunday and I walk in and I know all the songs they're singing and I know the stories in the Bible before he even preaches. And I'm like, bro, I've already heard this one. But our faith has to go beyond just what we know. It has to go into action. It has to go from, from learning and growing into yearning and going. Our faith must be active. And this morning as we dive in, we're going to see this dichotomy of faith. When we started uh, this church, and I just want to go ahead and give you this right here. If you ever hear me say, I started this church, just go ahead and fire me. Just do it. Because what you will see very quickly as you were here, this church was not started by one person just wanting to do this. It was started by a lot of people coming and bringing their collective efforts and giftings and skill and energy into making this what it is. But we announced, uh, it was right about two years ago, we announced that we were gonna be starting Keystone North. And as we did this, uh, we, we kind of went into this like crazy mode of anybody who has a pulse who even mentions the word Keystone or North, I'm gonna meet with you. Like, you, you get like scrappy when you're, you know, you're playing a church. And, and, and so we, I just went to this mode where it was like every day I would have a breakfast meeting and then a lunch meeting and then we'd have somebody over for dinner. And it was like, I wanna get in front of you. I wanna get you face to face. And I wanna tell you about the vision that God has given us for this church. Sometimes like I had, I had a breakfast meeting and then I'd leave a breakfast meeting to go to a breakfast meeting. They never tell you that like church planning, you better like, you know, get some bigger pants. <laughs> and so we would go to these meetings and we'd have people over and, and I can recall so many conversations where we'd sit there and, and, and people would be asking us like, so what's this whole thing gonna look like? Uh-huh. Where are you guys gonna meet? Somewhere. Like, do you guys have like a staff and some people? My, we'll get one of those eventually. You know, we'll, we'll figure that out. Well, you're for sure gonna have a youth ministry and this and that, and they're asking all these questions, good questions, solid questions, questions that I would like to have answered myself, but I would just look at them and say, you know what, I don't know yet. We've got this vision, we've got this dream that God has implanted inside of us, and we know we're running towards that, and we don't know all the logistics, we don't know all the answers, we don't have a brochure printed. 
And so we'd sit there and, and there'd come this point in the conversation where I would talk with people and I, I'd, just, I'd just sit there and I would have to say this, you know what, if you want to come and you want to have all the answers, I can't give that. So if you come, you're going to have to come on faith. You're going to have to come on faith, and this is what God has showed us that it's going to be like. This is what God has planted inside of us, that it's going to be this someday. And I'm so grateful to the many, many people who, before we ever had a service or a building or a staff team or we had all of the fancy stuff that we get now, they said, hey, I'm in, and I'm coming on faith. And this morning, I actually want to talk to you around the title of Come on Faith, because I believe there's some things that God is inviting us to. That God is inviting you to. There is a journey that God has been preparing you and stretching you and equipping you and giving you the experience for so that you can march into it. And at the end of this journey is your purpose, your destiny, your mission, the very reason that he created you. And I believe right now there is something in your life, every single person in this room, that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm out ahead of you and it's gonna be great, but are you willing to come on faith? Where you, you don't have all the answers, you don't know all the details, but you trust that I'm the one who is leading you. Are you willing to come on faith? And just as I said, we're gonna open up in Mark chapter six and as we read through this passage I want you to be attentive to the two different types of faith that become apparent through these passages. And we've just ended chapter five where Jesus has kind of made a little bit of a stir of things. Jesus cast out the, the, the demons from the man and cast them into pigs and all this kind of crazy stuff. And those people are like, you are way too crazy you're gonna have to go somewhere else. And so he gets back in the boat and he sails back with his disciples. And now as they, they enter, now there's this man who is coming and asking for, for his daughter to be healed. And this woman who is coming and reaching the fringes of his, his garment and saying, well, I, I'm gonna put my hope and trust in you. And as we see, Jesus is faithful to do what only Jesus can do. And both of these situations turn out for the glory of God and the good of the people who are putting their trust in him. We pick up in verse one of chapter six. It says, he went away, Jesus. He went away from there and came to his hometown. This is Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, in this day and age, this is actually quite a common occurrence that if there was somebody who had, who had been learned in the, the Torah, there's somebody who had maybe been studying and become a, a, a different rabbi from somewhere else as they would return back to their home place. They would get the opportunity to come and read before the people. And actually, you know, it's kind of funny in the culture, I think we might should start this, is whenever the rabbi would teach the people, the rabbi would sit and all the people would stand. And I'm just wondering if our attendance would cut in half by next week if we instituted that policy. But here, Jesus, I want you to get the picture of where Jesus is. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. This is a village that's probably uh, under 800 people in this entire village. These are people that have seen Jesus grow up. They, they know Mary. They know Joseph. They know all the siblings. They know the whole backstory. And he begins to teach in the synagogue. 
we learn in another passage that this is the point where he gets up and he, he says, I am the completion of this. You have heard this, these old prophecies and I am the one who is coming to complete this. And it says this, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? And what you got to picture about this is sometimes in the Bible, the language gets a little softened up. See, the real thing they were whispering to each other was more something like this. Who is this fool? Who does he think he is to get up and read this and declare this and act like this? We know you, Jesus. We've seen you. We grew up with you. We've watched you all along, but apparently not close enough because I'm pretty sure I would notice if someone perfect lived around me. And as they're looking, they're they're saying, you know, we can't even deny the fact that he's done miracles. We can't even deny that as he speaks, there is something about him. But we know who he is. And I want you to picture this too, is so often we get the Jesus of the ministry of that three years span towards the end of his life. But could you imagine the 30 previous years of Jesus, the son of God, who descended from heaven on a mission to save and redeem us, living 30 years in anonymity, going to work each day, swinging a hammer, cleaning up the mess, probably doing errands and chores for his mom. And as they see him, that's all they can see, is the Jesus who walked up and down their streets day in and day out. And they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? I want you to notice too, just in case you never really thought about this. um, We have good reason to believe that Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, had passed away somewhere in his teenage years. That somewhere after the the age of 12, when Jesus made his way with his parents to the temple and and that whole event happened, that's the last time that we ever read about Joseph. And it gives me reason to think that Jesus, why would Jesus wait 30 years? Is he probably spent many of those years filling in the spot of Joseph, going to work to provide, to care for his family. And some of you men, some of you women can take it for granted that that is an opportunity that you have to be faithful. That it's not nothing. If Jesus thought it was worthy of some of the time that he was here on earth to do, I don't think we should take it for granted. And I love this, <laughs> this ending. And it says, they took offense at him. I want you to, if you've got your Bible, if you're like comfortable with this, just go ahead and underline at. They took offense at at him. They're, they're hearing the words that he's speaking. They're, 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 they're acknowledging kind of what he has done, that they've heard of miracles and all this. But like, who are you to come in and declare this in this place and, and to try and exert authority over, the, over us? And they took offense at him. And I want you to, to know this morning, just because offense is given doesn't mean you have to take it. In a culture that is obsessed with being offensed. Like, let's get real, y'all. 
Like, you, just get in the comment section on Facebook or Instagram. And somebody will get offended over anything. There's somebody that's watching online right now that is offended that I'm talking about being offended. But just because something is offensive, you know what, can I tell you something? You don't have to take it. You don't have to receive that. I, I wish just half the church would get this because we'd have a whole lot better witness if we did. In fact, in Proverbs 19.11, it says this, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The proverb is saying this, it's actually for your glory. It's actually gonna make you look better when you can let an offense just slide off your shoulders. Instead of taking it to heart and living with it and, and growling with it, it's like, well, that person, they didn't hold the, they hold the door for them, but they didn't hold the door for me. And then they must not like me. And now the whole time, and then like six years later, you're still thinking about that person that didn't hold the door for you. So much of our life is consumed by offense. And you know what it never says here? It never says that Jesus took it back. It never said that Jesus was, was oh, oh, you're gonna be offended, I'm gonna be offended. It never said that he held a grudge. It never said that, that he, was, he was angry at them. It never said any of that stuff. And can I also tell you this? You have to be okay if you were a follower of Jesus Christ with at some point being offended and being offensive. Let, let me put this in, in, in the context. You cannot be discipled, actively growing, if you are not willing to be offended at some point. The gospel in and of itself is offensive to my own spirit because I don't wanna be told that I'm wrong that I'm messed up, that I'm broken. I don't wanna be told that I need somebody else to come pick me up. No, I, I got this. The gospel is offensive to the flesh. And so because of that, if you were gonna go and carry out the mission that God has called us to, which is to preach the good news, to share the gospel, you have to be okay with the fact that some things you say are going to offend. But just because the message is offensive doesn't mean you have to be. As we continue, it says, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. I just wanna let you know, this is not representative of the power of Jesus. This is not that all of a sudden their unbelief zapped him and it was like the kryptonite to Superman. No, it was this. He could not do any work there because there was no one in line waiting to be healed, to be set free, to be redeemed. Everywhere else, they hear about the name of Jesus and the crowds come and gather. They bow at his feet. They're they are coming to see, can this Savior save me? But here in his hometown, the people that know him best, they weren't coming but it is funny, I, I also love this. It's like, you know, he couldn't really do any mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few people and he healed them. Like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty awesome thing to me. Don't know if that, that, like, strikes your fancy at all, but in verse six, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, and he marveled, he was amazed, he was perplexed because of their unbelief. There's only other, one other time when this word marveled 
is ascribed to Jesus when he is looking at someone's face, faith when he is confused and perplexed and he's marveled, he's amazed. And it's when Jesus looked at a centurion soldier who said, you don't even need to come. I trust that when you say it, he will be healed. And, 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 and Jesus marveled at the faith of this man who should not have any faith in Jesus. But on the flip side, he marvels at the lack of faith from the people who should put the most trust in him. It says that he went about among the villages teaching. I want you to write this point down. This is very important. God won't heal what you won't bring. We've had this conversation with our community group over the last few weeks. That just, just sitting here and, and, and trying to position myself in this context, in this culture of Jesus going from village to village, up and down the streets, where crowds are gathering and, and these people are seeing these great works of Jesus. And there is this point that we have to wrestle with that Jesus didn't heal everyone. He didn't seek every disease out. But there were people who came desperate enough and laid themselves at the feet of Jesus that, that he was able to heal them. But as I think about this, the way my mind works, I just get to this point and I think, think of all the people. Just think of all the families that had some sort of crazy situation, a disease, an affliction, a need that they had been desperate for God to move. And Jesus walked right by their door. And Jesus came right through the center of their village. And instead of rushing out and laying themselves down at the feet of Jesus, they continued to perpetuate whatever situation they were in by a lack of desperation. And I think there was probably many that, that it was just because of doubt of, of who is this man? Can he really do all these things? Does he really care about me? I, I think there was probably some of them that maybe they didn't want to expose the issue that they need, needed healing in. Just think of that woman who we talked about last week. She was, I also think it was funny, uh, I got a lot of people texting me like, why did you give Joe the passage about menstruation for 12 years? I said he wanted it. I don't know. He, he was good with it. But just think about if she had been so embarrassed by the issue that is a very personal issue that she just thought, no, I'm good. I, I'm not going to bring that. I'm not going to expose that. I'm not going to let other people know that I'm dealing with that. And I just want to tell you that God won't heal what you won't bring. And I'm not saying that you gotta get up here on stage and you gotta parade in front of everybody all of your issues and all of your hangups and everything that you're dealing with. But I'm telling you, there should be a moment where you bring it to Jesus. Where you come in prayer and you have to acknowledge, you know what, God, I, I've had enough of this. I am struggling with this. I am dealing with this. And it's too much for me to carry. And there also has to be a moment where you find some biblical accountability, some relationships that you can go and open up to, people that will encourage you. And they better be believers. Because if you're carrying something hard, I don't want people to say, well, just keep your chin up. I, I don't want people saying, you do you, just figure it out, you'll be good. No, I, I want people to say, no, get on your face, dude. Bring it to the king of kings. 
Bring it to Jesus. Didn't you see what he did? And he can still do it if you bring it. Philippians 4, 6, a very familiar verse. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Some of you need to get over yourself today. And you need to ask for healing and restoration. And you need to lay bare your heart before God and see what he can do. Don't be like the people that Jesus walked right by them and they never even mustered a whisper, never even reached out a hand when he was right there. Let me pick up in verse seven and it's kind of a a little bit of a flip in the story. But I think this is an intentional flip by the author of Mark. He's wanting to contrast two different types of faith. It says, and he called the 12, this is, these are his disciples, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. This is, this is where we get this word apostello. If you've ever heard of the apostles, this is, this is mean that they are the sent ones. They are ambassadors. And I love this too. There's this imperfect verb in here that he kept on giving them power that when they needed it, even when they were apart from him, he kept on giving them everything they needed to accomplish the mission that he had given. And I think he did this in this posture of making them realize they are not the source. They are the funnel. They were the carriers, the ambassadors for him. And he sends them out two by two. And in this culture, that is actually one of the things that a legal requirement, that anything that was proclaimed in court, it had to be with witnesses, two witnesses. And so he's sending them out intentionally saying, you know what, you're gonna go with some credibility to declare something that is quite contrary to what a lot of people are believing and as he sent them out, it says he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. He said, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. And some of you are like, that's exactly how I'm living. But what I think is interesting is, is what he is sending them out in with is the same exact thing that God sent the Israelite people out of Egypt with. He's saying, take the staff. He's saying, take these things with you. Cloak, belt, sandals, and staff in hand. He's saying, you're going out into your promise, into your purpose, into your destiny, your calling. He says, take no bread, no bag, no money, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And this is not just Jesus knowing what the weather's gonna be. He's like, it's gonna be a little warm. You don't want two tunics. This is Jesus, and he's, he's saying here, don't go for comfort. Don't go to get all cozy. He's saying, I'm sending you out. Don't put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Yeah, that seems like a no-brainer. Stay there until you leave. That's pretty, that's pretty obvious, right? But what he's, he's, he's telling them is this. When someone opens the door to you, you stay there and minister. You don't hop on to the next train. You don't hop up to the next big thing. In this day and age, there was a lot of false prophets that would go around proclaiming different things and, and trying to prophesy in the name of God. And what they would do 
is they would go in one place and then they'd see, well, I mean, that guy, his hut has a hot tub, so I'm gonna go stay with him. And then, and then well, these, these guys, they got a lot more goats and a lot more meat and I, I can get some filet and, and, all, and, and they would just keep hopping their way up and working their way into this place where they were comfortable and they were living this lavish lifestyle. And when Jesus is saying, don't be like that. I don't even want you going out and, and thinking about where you're gonna stay. You go and wherever it is that opens up to you, you stay there and you be all about the mission. You be all about what I'm calling you to do. He says, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And some of y'all are just thinking like, that's like get the dirt off your shoulders, right? Like just don't be salty. What this is actually implying is this. In this culture, whatever Jews, they would journey outside of the Jewish territory. Whenever they would come back into Israel from, from Gentile territory, you know what they do? They would shake the dirt off their sandals, they didn't want to bring back the unholy into the holy. They didn't want to bring out the, the, the sovereign into this, this you know, or the, the, the broken into this sovereign area that God had given them. And so what Jesus is telling them is like, hey, actually, you know what? If they don't believe in you, just shake that dirt off because they are my people anyways. This is how intentional Jesus was as he's sending these people out. He says, if any place will not receive you, you gotta, you gotta get the dust off your feet. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. What a fun message to proclaim. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. There is this marriage of power and teaching. So often when I look around the American church, I feel like we have lost the power. We've got real good at preaching we got real good at teaching and, and making it catchy and, and, and all these kind of little handles that we can put on it and, and educate you and all this stuff, but we've lost the power. And when I see this, they go out to proclaim the gospel, but as they're doing it, they're also carrying the power of the Holy Spirit to cast out demons, to push back darkness, to raise people who are bound in their sickness to be free. So as we read this, we see the, the faith of the people in Nazareth, but then we also see the faith of the disciples. And what I want to call this today is, is, is the disciples had this come on faith. They, they had this thing where it was like Jesus was telling them, hey, go do this. You're going to go out, and I'm not going to be with you anymore. I haven't even given you a ton of training. You've gotten to see me do this, but I want you to go out, and you're going to tell people that everything they believe and everything they're orienting their life around is wrong. And as you do that, you're also gonna have to cast out some demons and heal some sickness. You good? Um, I'm gonna need like a 300-page dissertation on how to figure this thing out, Jesus. Is there like a YouTube video that I can watch? Like Jesus is sending them out and he's not really giving them a whole lot of clarity here. He's just giving them the direction to go. And I wanna tell you this morning, come on faith doesn't need all the details. It just needs the direction. Some of you are stagnant in what God is calling you to do in your life because you're waiting for all the details when he's just saying, I told you where to go, just start walking. I think of Abraham when God called him and he said, hey, go to a land that I will show you. Just start going that direction. I think of Isaac when he went to, to go out and sacrifice and, and he's got his only son there and, he's, and God is saying at the last minute, I will show you the sacrifice. 
I think of David when he's marching out and he knows that the giant has got to fall, but all he's got is a sling in hand. He knows that God is going to get him through. I think of Moses as he leads the people out of Egypt and they come up against a very big obstacle. And in this moment, he's, he, he's, he's still got faith. And God is saying, just, just trust me one step at a time. I've given you the direction. Just start marching and you will see my providence. You will see my sovereignty. You will see my power. If you were just willing to go, get up off your seat and start moving. And I just, I just look at what God can do through obedient faith. I just see what God can do through, through a bunch of nobodies some scrubs who couldn't even cut it for the Rabbi 202 chorus, you know, like, like they were the ones that, that nobody else picked. They were out fishing, and, and Jesus says, yo, you are my guys, and I'm going to go send you out to do the stuff that this world has never seen. You just have to trust me. Know that I will give you the direction and the wisdom. Many of us, if we've been in church for any period of time, We've been believers, follower of Jesus. There's probably a season where you started off hot, right? I'm gonna change the world for Christ. And then two weeks later, you're like, your Bible's dusty. I'm gonna get everything right and I'm gonna do this and all. And you, your passion fades. And you've got this intense faith. You're, you're like, I'm, I'm going wherever you call me to go, Jesus. You call me to go to Africa, then I'll, I'll go for a week. But if you're calling me to, to, to share my faith, I'll do it. And, and you're, all, you're all about this. And then what happens over time is it fades. You see what happens is we go from this, this come on faith, this, this come on faith that says no matter where you're leading, I'm, I'm coming. And this, this come on faith ends up turning into this, what? It turns into this common faith. That many times we can do the same thing, that, that we can go from this faith that says, yeah, I'm gonna go out and do whatever it is. And then and all of a sudden it's like, I've done this for 15 years. I've been a part of this church. I was on the elder board at the last place. And, and all of a sudden, we've, we've turned this thing that's supposed to be extraordinary into something that is common and casual. We have lost the wonder of the gospel entirely. It strikes me that many churches will gather, and I've been guilty of this, and we will sing songs and these lyrics will be up on the screen about how Jesus, who was perfect, came to set us free. And because we don't like the beat or the melody, we've got our arms crossed. Excuse me, have we lost sight of the fact that Jesus redeemed us? It's become too common. We've gotten too complacent. The next point I want you to write down is this. What hurts God the most isn't no faith. It's common faith. It's this faith that becomes apathetic. It's this faith that just is kind of nonchalant about, about the good news of the gospel and the work that God has done in and through us and around us. My biggest fear in life is, is that I would grow cold in my faith. 
Even as I, I get up here and preach, I tell you that every single week, every single week before I get out here, I get on my face somewhere backstage because I know that I am desperate for the Holy Spirit to anoint me and speak through me because I cannot do this on my own. But my biggest fear is not that I would forget how to preach, it's that I'd forget how to preach in desperation for him. That I would get so experienced and comfortable that I, you know, I've preached about 150 messages now and I've done all this, I've got my routine, that I don't have these moments where I gotta get face down on the ground and recognize that this is not a common thing that we are doing. We are opening up the very word of God so that we can be transformed by its power. What hurts God isn't no faith. It's common faith. In Revelation 3.15, this is a prophecy that John is getting and God is speaking and he's saying, I want you to write these letters to these churches and to the church in Laodicea. I want you to write this. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you either be hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What, what he's saying here is this. He's like, I just want to know which camp you're really in. I just want some clarity here from you. Because you say with your lips that you believe this, but your actions do not resemble anything you proclaim. I'd much rather you say, you know what, I just don't even buy any of this than that. God is looking for some people who are not gonna get common with it, who is not gonna settle into this old thing that we do ritualistically every Sunday again and again. You know what, sometimes I think many of us, we've made church common. Some of y'all treat church like it's a wah-wah. It's there when it's convenient. And there's a church on every corner. You can go in and get whatever flavor you want and all this. The church is the body of Christ that Jesus gave his life for so that when we gather here, we're experiencing all that he is wanting us to do, deployed in the mission that he has called us to. And we act casual about that. We act like it's no big deal. And if we're being really honest, we value everything else above it. We, we, we put like, if, if I have nothing else going on on a Sunday, I'll go to church. If I have nothing else going on on a Wednesday night, then I'll, I'll go to community group. If, 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 and all these different things when we've made it common. Do you think, do you think there's believers that are around the world in persecuted nations who would give anything for one week of gathering in a room with a few hundred believers and looking around saying, we are not alone. We're not alone in this. That God is moving. That God is active. Even in our worship, we can get common, complacent. The enemy of worship isn't hate, it's just common. It's just removing the reverence from something and acting like something that is so worthy of worship is just eh. I am um, kind of notorious for this, but I wear the same thing all the time. It's pretty much true. I got like eight pairs of black jeans, 25 white t or black t-shirts, and 38 jackets. 
And then by the door, Amanda hates this, I've got like 16 pairs of white shoes. It's just who I am. But what's funny is I'll go to the store and I'll buy like some fresh white kicks. And then for like the first six weeks, I like barely even wanna walk in my house in them. Right, you're like, oh, I'm gonna take care of these. I'm gonna scrub them clean. I'm gonna, I cherish these things and I'm gonna care for them. I wanna keep it, you know, just white. I wanna keep them fresh. And then what happens over time is like you step in one puddle. You're like, well, there they go. And then, then before you know it, like these, these used to be my prize white shoes. Now these are kind of like my, my secondary shoes. That, like if it's me going out in the yard, I'll, I'll wear these in the yard. If it's me preaching on stage, I'll, I'll preach on stage. If it's me going to pick up the kids, I'll pick up the kids. And, and what's happened is, is over time, what I used to cherish and care about, I'm now lukewarm. I just, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And I think there's some of us in this room, if we're being really honest with ourselves, what we used to do and where we would guard our heart and we would dive in the word and we would dive in scripture and we'd spend time on our knees, and we'd spend time in worship. And when we heard the gospel and we opened it up, we recognized how much God has done for us. We were amazed and now it's just kind of this thing. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven someday. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, he forgives me. And we've made it common and we've lost our wonder. We've lost our passion. We have lost sight of what God has done. And I wanna tell you the gospel isn't normal. It isn't common. It isn't ordinary. The fact that he has redeemed you, saved you, restored you. He looks at every mess that you've ever made and he says, I will wipe it clean with my blood. I will cover it. And not only that, I will call you into a life full of purpose and meaning. And I will bring you alongside in the mission that I've given to go change the world, to have an impact that is lasting far beyond your few years here on this earth. And then when you die, you do not just go in a grave, but no, you get to spend eternity in heaven with me. This is the good news. It is not common. It's not ordinary. It's not something that we should passively sit by and just say, yeah, I heard it before. I read that before. I sung this song before. But I believe that today the Holy Spirit, if we open our hearts up to him, will reignite our faith. And notice this, I did not say reignite your passion. Your faith can fuel your passion, but your passion should not fuel your faith. Passion comes and goes. I'm not talking about goosebumps and butterflies. I'm not, I'm not talking about we gotta get back into like the junior high dating phase with God where it was every moment. No, I'm talking about we never lose sight of the fact that we were messed up and broken and he redeemed us anyways. That when we sing these familiar songs, they don't become common. Honestly, can I tell you even one thing that grieves me today? We've turned worship into an industry, into a commodity that we can just turn on and turn off, that we can watch and observe instead of something that we are living out, that we are called to be worshipers, that we are called to remember, that we are called to be a people that are willing to say, Jesus, wherever you tell me to go, I don't need all the details. I don't need to know how it's gonna work out. 
I'm willing to come on faith today. Because how could I not when I remember all that you've done? That you're the one who can heal the blind, cleanse the leper, set the captive free. So God, I give you glory and honor. Restore the wonder in me, Holy Spirit, today. 